Welcome everyone to the Theory of Enchantment podcast. I'm your host, Chloe Valdry. I'm so excited to finally be getting back to another episode. I know it's been a while since my interview with my father, but it's 2019 and we're back at it. Today, our guest is Joseph Kahn, award-winning filmmaker who has done some pretty incredible things, actually. His resume is pretty epic. He's worked with some incredible hip-hop artists, including Eminem. He's produced a lot of Taylor Swift's music videos. But today, we will be talking about his film, Bodied, which explores the intricacies and contradictions of race and identity in America. I really love this film because the first principle of the theory of enchantment is remember that we are human beings, not political abstractions. And Joseph Kahn's film really explores and unpacks that very basic concept, which is actually quite refreshing in a world where it feels like we're increasingly being stereotyped and pigeonholed to fit into certain categories that exist as figments of each other's imagination. Being that I love art and we sort of get into that, during the course of the interview. Um, I'm so happy that I was able to have a very lively and interesting discussion about the limits and expectations we put upon art and of course art's incredible ability to break boundaries and take us to new dimensions, which is precisely the goal of art. I hope you enjoy this interview with Joseph Kahn We will talk about the film Bodied, and I hope you go watch it. It's incredible, especially if you're into hip-hop, battle rapping, and the culture of race and identity. Enjoy. Thank you for joining me today and agreeing to do this conversation, to have this conversation with me. Uh, How are you, first of all? Like, you seem to be always busy and just like a superstar, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, thanks. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Uh, yeah, I'm super, super busy, unfortunately. I think it's a blessing, you know? Yeah. Um, a blessing and a burden, I guess. So I, I watched your film last night, and it was amazing. It blew me away. It was one of the most important films I think I've seen in a long time on questions of race and sub- the subversion of stereotypes. Um, so I would just love if you could walk us through like how you came up with the concept and what was really the inspiration behind that film in the first place. Well, a little backstory on me first. Uh, I am a short form filmmaker, mostly music videos and commercials. I've been doing that for the last 26, 27 years, actually probably 30 if you really want to count the times that I'm not getting paid. Right. (laughs) Nice. And, um, I make films like once every seven or eight years and I'd made a movie called Torque for Warner Brothers like back in 2002, that thing bombed and that pretty much killed my studio career. Okay. (laughs) In order to make films, what I've done in the last, you know, 15 years is spend money on my own stuff. Um, I've made a couple movies, uh, you know, one, one was called detention. Uh, I made a power Rangers short film that kind of blew up the internet a couple years ago. Uh, and then I made this, and what I do is that I, I make a lot of commercials for the most part. And then every couple of years, I, I, I'll spend my money on something that I feel is interesting or worthy or, or worth spending millions on. Yeah. And uh, I decided to make a movie about speech and the world today. And that's bodied. Nice. And why particularly through the, I guess, prism of, of battle rapping? Why does that speak to you specifically? 
it's strangely kind of a personal story um, because I broke in through the industry through rap. Um, and it's not that I was like a huge rap fan when I broke through. I did like rap. And remember, mm-hmm. I, my, my, um, my, my knowledge of hip hop is a bit different than my, my, um, my interaction with it than say someone from today. Today, hip hop is like the number one thing in the world. It's literally like the record industry. It's, if you look at the top 10 albums, like nine uh, of 10 of them are hip hop albums. And so it's really the mainstream now. But in the early eighties, when I, when I was listening to music as a, as a kid, hip hop was like this new thing. Um, yeah. people, people used to debate whether it was actually music or not. And, uh, I always liked certain hip hop artists back then. And it wasn't even called hip hop back then. <laughs> you know, oh. it was just, you know, it was like, it was just rap. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, I just really, uh, I really was always fascinated by it cause it was a different sound. I, I don't know if you can even imagine what it's like to hear basically this, uh, bedrock of like, you know, rock and roll and, and, uh, and like, you know, bluesy type stuff or whatever it was like mainstream at the time. Yeah. And all of a sudden rap comes out in like the early eighties and it's such a completely different sound and attitude. It, mm-hmm. It's kind of mind blowing, um, for someone who was uh, like getting introduced to it at like, say 12 years old. Right. And, um, and I flash forward about five years later, I'm actually doing gangster rap videos for people in Houston. Cause that's where I grew up. And, mm-hmm. and it was always this interesting crash course in race and relations and otherness that mm-hmm. was interesting to me. So on a certain level, you know, body takes place uh, in, in a world where this white academic student goes into um, urban black culture and has to um, deal with it and understand it and integrate into it. Um, that was a little bit of my story, um, oh. you know, when yeah. I was 17 years old in Houston, Texas. Uh, I mean, granted, by the way, it, the body is actually based on a real real thing on a certain level. Uh, the writer of it is Alex Larson. He's a white battle rapper from Canada. He's a king of the dot champion for a, couple, uh, for a year. Okay. And, and we loosely based it on his life, but it did have applications to my own life. Nice. Yeah, this idea of sort of rap being outside of the mainstream in and of itself, at least initially, and then someone who's out of that, outside of that mainstream entering into that mainstream is interesting. It's sort of like, it's very layered and paradoxical in that sense. Um, and I think that it has a lot to teach us because our actual lives are paradoxical. Um, and, and one of the things that I really gravitated towards in the film was this subversion of stereotype, which I think um, we, we are losing sight of in terms of like the truth of that, the truth of, of, of the fact that we, we don't fit into stereotypes and we, we don't, we don't actually, we aren't actually the pigeonholed uh, people we are perceived to be on social media and such. Yeah, you know, it's a funny thing because, you know, I am Asian American, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I live in Los Angeles. <clears throat> um, and I work in the entertainment business for the last 30 years. So my worldview of what stereotypes are and what cultures are and uh, what race is, is a bit different than someone that lives in, say, middle America or even within the confines of, say, academic culture uh, yeah. that, that sort of studies it from a distance. Yeah, like, I, I, I've, I've had this interesting, wonderful experience where uh, in my world, uh, race is so integrated and so malleable. And um, you see people of all races constantly, constantly blending together and doing business together on a weird to the point where it's not really a factor. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but the way it gets processed out when, when you actually sell it to people it becomes much more radicalized. You know, the people making the stuff are very racially integrated and we um, 
you know, we, we sort of deal with each other as people. Right. But by the time it gets processed uh, as mainstream entertainment, it becomes like super radical. And you, you'll see like there's a divisions of what we think are culture because it's, it's, it's a byproduct of selling to demographics right. and moving out niche markets and things like that. Um, so by the time it comes out, it feels much more separated and segregated. Mm. But the reality is behind the scenes, it's a very integrated process it, to the point where uh, when for instance, uh, two years ago when Trump was, uh, you know, running for office, mm-hmm. from my perspective, from my world, it was so integrated racially that I thought there's no way in hell Trump could ever win, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> we were just past it on a certain level. And, yeah. and, and then it was just a complete shock to see that how um, it was uh, completely segregated on both the left and the right. Yeah. I think it's interesting. Two, two things come to mind when you talk about the dichotomy between the actual artists or I guess the actual creators and academia. Cause I think that this is something that came through on in your film. There's, there's such a striking difference between how some of the characters who exist in this hyper academic world view race and how the actual white guy who is permeating the communities he's rapping in comes to view race and his development of race uh, ends up being a lot less processed to use your term um and a lot more it feels more authentic than the people who are sort of giving like like basic typical anthropology assessments on race in their classrooms um and i'm, I'm very curious how how you came up with that like the idea of depicting that contrast well, part of it also comes from the fact that I started from an academic point of view, where I went oh, okay. to NYU film school. Um, and part, a lot of this also has to do with the writer. It was something that we both agreed that uh, it would be a really fun um, dichotomy to have the academic versus the real culture. Yeah. Um, and there's a hypocrisy that goes on, too. Um, uh, specifically in that I've had over the course of many, many years, as I've uh, done rap videos, I've seen how there's a widening gulf between the actual experience of integrating and, and working within, uh, quote unquote, the field, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Versus, you know, staying behind an ivory tower. And the ivory tower doesn't have to be academic. It just has to be anybody that has like an opinion without actually, um, you know, experiencing um, the matter at first hand, you know? Right. And so it's been interesting for me, for instance, like uh, not just in battle rap, but rap in general or music in general. I mean, I tend to do a lot of pop art, right? Mm -hmm. And, and if you listen to any music, a lot of that stuff, uh, regardless of politics at at the core, it's, it's sold to teenagers, you know, Mm -hmm. and what do teenagers really care about at the end of the day? Sex, right? And partying, you know? So the vast majority of stuff that you're going to make videos for out there, or like sex and party songs, right. maybe drinking, maybe drug, whatever it is, but that's just the nature of being a teenager, right? right. And, um, and what's interesting is that as the world has become much more uh, hyper sort of woke about um, particular issues that of right and wrong and things like that, mm-hmm. uh, there's a judgment call being made on, um, on music. Um, mm. And, but a lot of it is coming from this weird sort of, quasi-academic point of view where people are talking about the issues but they're not necessarily experiencing the issues mm. and I, you know I, I actually ran into a like for instance I talked to a, a film critic uh, who was talking to me and she you know she loved the movie but she is definitely super lefty um, yeah. and 
and she was talking, she, she, like people, go, by the way, people go into the movie and they bring what they want out of it because I, I didn't construct it in a way that it's necessarily giving a moral. It was more right. of a demonstration and a simulation of an experience. Right. But, but her, her takeaway from it was like, um, she loved the, the, uh, the multiculturalism because, you know, like in, in the film critic world, there's a, there's a big push for multiculturalism right now. Right. Um, but on the flip side, some of the other aspects of it were, were like a little bit like, blind to her uh the fact that there was quote-unquote misogyny and racism and and people were like making terrible jokes about each other right um, you know she just loved the fact that i was showing black people on screen right wait so did she totally like overlook that part or she was just totally oblivious to it i think that there was a little element of denial that the film was actually not quite the kumbaya perspective of um uh, of race that, right. that like here like you know for instance uh, I, I'm trying to find a, a delicate way of like going into this without like turning myself into a pariah <laughs> just yeah. by saying something completely uh, wrong. <laughs> it, 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 not not because I'm saying it wrong, because it just reads It'll that be way. Received wrong, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I think that like the the sort of neutrality of the film's attitude towards uh, racial jokes, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, like, so, like, there's a lot of people that walk into it going, "This is the most racist movie ever," right? right. <laughs> and other people walk away going, "Oh, it's a definite commentary about race, and um, these are the ways you can defend how they're making racist jokes." Right, right. right. I think with her, um, she didn't quite—I uh, don't know if she really quite a ha- had a handle on anything other than the fact they were like beautiful black people on screen. You know, well, this is this is interesting <laughs> because what it sounds like, and you know, I don't know if this is true, but it sounds like she's not fully wrestling with the people as people, (laughs) right? And people come with all kinds of shortcomings and failures and vulnerabilities and imperfections and complexity. She's more interested in diversity that's skin deep as opposed to complexity on a, which is the, which is the true, I think, human condition. And the, the true thing that I think many artists want to want to capture in their in their artistry. That's what it sounds like to me. It's like she's she's happy that there are sort of placeholders that happen to be of mul- multiple colors or multiple backgrounds, but she's not actually interested in the nitty gritty complexity of of what each of those characters actually contain, which is multitudes. I, yeah, I a hundred percent agree with you, and I especially love uh, uh, your word placeholder, right? Yeah. <laughs> Because that's yeah. what people are looking for. They're looking for placeholders, just slot in something, and and hopefully it just sort of toes the line as to what you think those particular stereotypes should be, and what they represent, or what they should be meaningful in a society. Right. When the reality, and I agree with you, people are complex. There's good and bad in people. Um, we uh, we pontificate uh, to make sure that certain certain ways, like th- there's an agenda that you want to push someone's ethnicity forward to uh, to present, um, you know, a placeholder perspective of life, but yeah. you know. That's definitely something I wanted to avoid with the movie. I wanted to make sure that, like, you know, the heroes aren't necessarily heroes, the villains aren't necessarily villains. There's a right. muddy gray area in people, and that's life. And right. the film itself is muddy and gray, quite frankly. It's not meant to uh, give you a positive message or a specific message. It's a simulation to make you feel things. Right. I actually think it, I mean, this is just my personal opinion, but I actually think it does end up giving a positive message, but that's probably just my my bias um because i think that by showcasing complexity uh you are being positive in a way because you're giving expression to the humanity in people and i always view that 
you, even if it's like the bad aspects of, of what it means to be a human being, I, I still think that that is way more valuable than, again, just putting placeholders and um, abstractions that happen to be a, a multitude of different colors and saying, here, now we have a diverse film for you. Go see it because it's diverse, whatever that means. Well, by your definition of what you think is a positive message, I love that, <laughs> you know, because I think that's <laughs> super accurate to what we did with the film. You know, the, you know, the funny thing about the movie itself, because um, the movie deals with uh, very specific, uh, you know, things about language and uh, stereotypes and, um, and racial jokes and mm -hmm. stereotype jokes. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> It, it was very interesting. Uh, the the typical version of this movie, uh, whenever you make sort of like a movie about multiculturalism, mm -hmm. people like whenever you submit, this is an independent movie, so you have to submit it to film festivals. Mm -hmm. And film festivals are run by essentially people in ivory towers. Uh, right. They're directly linked with the academic world, right? Right. And 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 they are all generally on on the left. And by the way, I am a leftist. Like, uh, yeah. and by the way, I know that you talk to him, but I'm not like. I, by the way, I'm not like a fake leftist, like Dave, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm like a real leftist, you know? Um, um, you should but, talk to him. You guys would have an interesting conversation. Yeah. Um, I, I can't stand the Trump stuff, but anyways, um, but I'm open to talking, but, uh, but here's the thing. Like when you, when we submit the, these films to people, our, my mm -hmm. movie bodied actually got rejected by almost every film festival. It was insane. Oh, well, on um, what basis? Uh, it made people very uncomfortable because on a certain level, um, the way that you would have to process this movie is very strange from a, uh, from an ivory tower point of view. Like if you're like a, a white liberal person that, uh, that runs a very, you know, like progressive film festival, and mm -hmm. then you get this battle rap film where this white kid comes in there and starts making racist jokes for yeah. two hours. Right. Yeah. And then people are just like making really brutal stereotypes about each other. And at the end of the day, the white kid wins, right? right. <laughs> and you walk away from the movie, you're like, what the fuck did I just watch? You know, right. yeah. you know, this kid essentially gets more and more racist as the movie gets on. And then he doesn't get, he doesn't get like, you know, formally punished for it. Although right. he does get punished if you actually watch the movie, right? Yeah. Mostly. Yeah. Um, people literally like, like rejected it. Cause I feel like, um, as a, if you're like a white academic person, you don't walk in there and, and walk out of it going, you know, this made me feel great about being a white academic person. You right. know? <laughs> like, but it wasn't like one of those things where it was like 12 years a slave where Brad Pitt got a role being the good slave owner, you know, right, exactly. <laughs> you know yeah. it's like, there's no good person in the movie. Yeah. So, and it's fun. And the funny thing, and so literally, I think that was the main sort of rejection of the movie for, for the most part. And the okay. other thing that's also interesting is that when people watch the movie, like Lily, this is like these are like one of the the, the main criticisms I get from like the white academic people. They go, mm -hmm. ninety percent of this movie was phenomenal. I, I thought it was phenomenal the the way that you dissected race and stereotype and stuff like that. But you went too hard on the white academic kids. You know that those were stereotypes. Those kids don't really exist that way. And the thing that's mind blowing is somehow they were okay with 90% of the super racist jokes, but then they were not happy with oh. the jokes on the white academics. That's mind blowing to me. That's <laughs> like, so interesting. I mean, that's a film in and of itself. Yeah. <laughs> they was... literally, and, they're, and what I'm hearing is that it's like the kids that we wrote are writing back to us saying, we don't like the fact that you made fun of us. You know? Right, exactly. That's, it's interesting because um, as a black person, I, I, mean, I don't know, obviously don't know all the white people who saw this film, but as a black person, I feel like I am more comfortable watching this film than a white academic. <laughs> so 
way you're describing them. You know, it's funny too, because we also get criticism from black people on the film too, mm -hmm. because there is a certain level of, um, you know, the thesis of a white racist kid or a kid turning racist as the movie goes on and the question of whether he's racist or is he actually playing a game, you know, like, mm -hmm. and, right. and, and where's the, uh, is he culturally insensitive? These are questions I actually wanted to ask in the movie. The entire mm. thesis is based on the fact that it's a white kid doing it. And, and one of the things, the way I always present this is that when 8 Mile came out, mm -hmm. the biggest question back in 2002 was, can a white guy rap, right? right. That was a legitimate question back then. <laughs> right? Like, because people hadn't seen it and it wasn't proven and it wasn't in the marketplace, right? Right. Uh, but the question today, after many, many years, isn't, can a white guy rap? The question that's more pertainable today is, should a white guy rap? You right. know? Yeah. And so that's the question we're asking. But I think uh, there's a certain segment of um, African-Americans who watch the film and they just reject it outright because they see a white person rapping. and It already offends the sensibilities of cultural appropriation and things like that right off the bat right. without I, looking at the, the, the context of it. Right. And I think um, What's-His-Name's wife sort of represents that opinion in the film, right? Um, when she's saying you're culturally appropriating blackness to make a living. Um, and, and I love how it has all of these opinions from people and they're essentially shouting at each other in real life as opposed to on Twitter. And so we can actually see these things, see these arguments play themselves out without necessarily coming to a resolution um, at the end. I mean, I personally have, you know, have my opinions about it, but I, I think that that clash is, is fundamentally a good thing. I, I would I would ask you, you know, you talked about people, especially in the ivory towers, and ivory tower can mean anything, not just academia, but just where, where you haven't had the experience that you're actually opining on. Um, what advice would you give to people to actually encourage them to get out of their comfort zones and get out of their echo chambers and engage in the communities or with the communities they have such strong opinions on? Well, you know, I think that the ivory tower is just representative of a very specific sort of thinking. Um, and you can have a different type of ivory tower on the street as much as you have um, in the tower itself, mm, you know? Okay, yeah. And um, I think what it is, it's a it's a, a collective segregation that's happening. And it's very unfortunate. Like, mm. I remember around 2002 when I was a young man. <laughs> and I remember going to L.A. parties, right, yeah. here in, in Los Angeles. And when you go into a club, it, like, this is the point at which, like, say, Pharrell was going on and NERD yeah. and that sort of type of music. It was, like, dance music. And there was, like, mm -hmm. this uh, – and and Beyonce had just popped out uh, as a solo artist. Mm. I remember going to, the, I remember going to these parties in LA and, and, you know, having been in, uh, sort of um, accepted into um, urban culture. Um, yeah. I've been to black clubs, I've been to black strip clubs. I was mm. in the white world. I was, uh, it's an interesting world that I've been able to sort of experience. But one thing that happened in mainstream pop was there was this cross collateralization of, of, uh, of culture, like cultural appropriation didn't exist. Cultural integration was what was going on and people mm. wanted to seek that out. I remember specifically saying, remember like in the nineties, it was completely uh, like um, segregated. There was mm. uh, Snoop Dogg with the, or, and, and then there was Pearl Jam, right? <laughs> right. And, and you could literally see through the code of how people dressed, what they were listening to. Right. Those guys with the baggy jeans uh, listened to rap and those guys with the flannel shirts listened to rock. <laughs> Right? right, and the beautiful thing is, in the early two thousands, when you went to club, you saw you saw black guys start wearing skinny jeans, mm. and, you know, right, white guys wearing, and... yeah, and the white guys starting to wear like you know like 
things with zippers on them. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought that was an int interesting collation going on. And you could actually see like uh, racial blending going on. White guys are dating black girls and girls, uh, black girls are white guys. And it was interesting. But yeah. then somehow in the late 2000s, it got segregated again. I think it was the rise of social media and how social media tends to like make people like sort of pick a side, right? See, it's like yeah. prison. Like yeah. you could be, you could be like completely like a normal person, but once you go to prison, you got to pick a race in order yeah. to survive, right? Yeah. Social media is a prison, you know. Yeah, and, it actually uh, reminds me of that episode of Oprah when <laughs> Oprah did this experiment where she basically took her audience and divided them between brown-eyed and blue-eyed, I think, and she, and she it was just an experiment to see like how caught up they would get into it. They would get into it, but like by the end of the segment, she had them yelling at each other. And trying to figure out which which of the two had the greater value based upon eye color, right. like, <laughs> like social media turns us into these beings that we would otherwise not be. Yeah, you <laughs> by, know, by rewarding that kind of behavior. You yeah, know? and the and, and the funny thing is, you know, there are there are cultural differences for sure, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, like they do exist, like, mm -hmm. and, and, but they tend to be on a scale, right? Like, you know, um, like, like the difference between white people and black people from an Asian perspective, who's an immigrant, yeah. it's not that big, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, you're both yeah. eating hamburgers. Oh, that's you know? interesting. Yeah. You know, you're, you're both listening to, uh, like uh, pop culture on some level, whether it's rap or whatever, but you, and, and, it's not like black people don't listen to rock music either. You know? right, right. And, and so like from a cultural point of view, from an immigrant point of view, black people and white people are much closer together than to an Asian person, you know? Right. And, and the funny thing is, is that uh, as I, I was like an Asian kid growing up in Texas who was, that was already multicultural because I went to a white Hispanic black school. Right. <laughs> yeah. But then when I started going to hip hop and, and I started doing my gangster rap videos and I was literally taken out of the middle class world and went into the lower, uh, lower income world of uh, poor black kids in, uh, in um, yeah. Houston, Texas. Yeah. I got to see that perspective and I saw some cultural differences, but at the end of the day, those kids were still the same fucking kids. You know? yeah. like, they just had less money, but they, they still liked the same shit. They still like to eat, eat the same stuff, you know? Yeah. And, and the funny thing is, is that aside from everyone's differences at the end of the day, everybody's still a fucking human being. We keep forgetting that, you know, yeah. like, uh, the, the, uh, the fetishization of people's differences mm. is, is much more of a thing now than it was like, say like 15 years ago when people wanted to integrate and explore and, and create new things. And, and now it seems like we're just carving out creativity and saying, you stay over there and I stay over there. And it's just not good for anybody. It's actually quite ironic because this is happening in the era of wokeness right yep. it, it's it's a greater process of fetishizing people's differences in an era in where the people who claim to be um sort of enlightened um and want to not do that are precisely doing that uh yep. ironically I, I was actually reminded of another show when i was watching your film because i think it's an interesting interesting similarities and differences have you seen the show uh, dear white people on netflix no i i watched a, um, a little bit of the actual feature film Okay. I, I couldn't finish it. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. No, it's not, no offense to me. Um, so I, I actually haven't seen the movie, but I saw the first season uh, of the Netflix series based upon the movie. I'm mm -hmm. actually writing a piece about it uh, right now. What, what was interesting in the sort of similarities um, between your film and between the show is that both of these pieces show the complexity of what it means to be a human being 
However, the difference is that I think your film actually shows the full extent of what it means to be a human being and Dear White People does it. Meaning my, my big problem with Dear White People and I, I thought that it was actually mostly a beautiful series, but the problem was that while it conveyed the complexity of what it means to be a black person, it did not ex extend that same generosity to white people. So for Dear White People, the white people were essentially just placeholders. Yeah, I actually find that uh, it's funny. There's a show called uh, Fresh Off the Boat. Oh, yeah, <laughs> which, I've seen like one or two episodes of that. Yeah. Uh, my wife is really into that, and my wife is white, right? Um, but <laughs> when I watch it, and yeah. it's really funny to see the Asian family, which is Chinese, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And I'm So, like, they're not, there's not that much correlation between the two. Yeah. But it's funny to see how, like, they put in a lot of effort in terms of making the Asian family great, but then the white people in that show are complete bumbleheads. Like, right. they're, like, exactly. they're, like, they're like, they're just like fucking clowns, you know? And <laughs> yes. like, these aren't, like, even real white people. Like, who are these antagonists? Like, they're, they're like literally morons. You know, yeah. it's like, if you, if you flipped it and you made Asian persons like that, you would say this is the most racist show ever. Yeah. You know, and the other thing I always find interesting about in terms of the way the art world works, um, because there's, there is a certain white liberal guilt as an Asian person I've never really experienced, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. but, but it does cloud their judgment on a weird level because you end up having like this, uh, this elevation of, uh, of black people in an unrealistic way, you know, mm. like black people have to be either LeBron fucking James, right. right? <laughs> you know, and like fucking scoring every fucking night and being the most fucking superhuman person of all time. Right. Yeah. Or if they have an ethical basis, they have to be like Martin Luther King jr. You right. know? And, <laughs> right. And so, so like white people like literally cannot sort of process or allow themselves to process people as people that they're just like, whether it's on an ethical basis or athletic basis or a career basis, they're, they're, they're black people can do no wrong. And yeah. if, if they don't, if they, they don't allow themselves to criticize, um, otherwise they're going to feel like they're being super racist and it's just, it's just an untenable position, you know? Yeah. And it's not, it's not a good thing because I, uh, it, you're kind of setting up black people to fail when you have that high of a standard, but they either got to be fucking LeBron James or Martin Luther King Jr. People will fucking make mistakes, you know? Right. Um, yeah, definitely. Or, or you have to be like LeBron James or Martin Luther King to even get the attention of, of certain white people in academia. Yeah. Because the because other types of people who are black do not fit into their perceived notions of what it means to be a black person. Well, and then there's also a flip side too, where uh, the story has to be um, super super tragic, you know? Like, <laughs> right. Like, right. You know, like five like, years of slave. <laughs> yeah, like For you're, example, either, yeah. either you're getting whipped the whole movie, or yeah. or or a cop is shooting you every five minutes. It's not a valid story, you know. Right. Uh, it's just a it's just a weird place to be. So when you make a movie like Body, where black people are just like like everyone else, yeah. and, and everybody in the movie has flaws, uh, I just feel like um, people then judge the movie like, why did you not say the most positive message about every single person in this movie? And I'm like, that's not the agenda, you know. Right. You know. Um, it's also just not it's it's not realistic. What's interesting about Dear White People is by turning white people into placeholders and abstractions, the purpose of the film or the series is not served. Meaning the characters in that film are spending their time trying to tell white people to do better. But if you portray white people not as people, but as abstractions, uh, it's only people who can do better, right? It's not abstractions right. who can do better. It's not like objects 
or objectified figments of your imagination that can do better. It's people with the fullness of their complexity. And so the actual purpose of the show is undermined because of that, of that gap. Yeah, but you know, here's the, here's another sort of uh, complexity thing I'm going to throw into the conversation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, like I'm not unsympathetic to the plight of black people, you know. Right. I don't. I don't think that like the uh, that I'm not like a white person that thinks like, well, shit. It you know, in 30 years, racism is solved. Right. Get over it. <laughs> you know, like I'm not that guy either. You know, yeah. I do think that there are some there, there are some valid issues. Some of them may get like completely politicized and mm-hmm. um, turned into something else, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there are real issues like when I go into like um when I, I remember like in this in the early 90s when I went into like the black ghettos I thought yeah. it was fucking terrible <laughs> you know like yeah. uh, um and the drugs were there and like here's the thing when I first went into it and I was doing videos for gangster rappers and they were rapping about drugs and guns and murder and things like that I thought it was all fake because I had only seen that in the movies <laughs> it was about six months into it when I was waiting for a guy to get out of jail yeah I was like wait a minute these stories are kind of true <laughs> you know yeah. like like it, it blew my mind you know and yeah and so when I work with certain artists, even to this day, you can see a cultural gap between people that are aware of poverty and people that are not, you know, um, people do that some, are. Do some artists put on this sort of persona of being aware of it? A hundred percent. hundred percent. I mean, there's one out there right now uh, that's getting a lot of claim. And I, I always felt her, she's kind of a controversial figure. I don't okay. know anymore, by the way. But, um, <laughs> but I just feel like, uh, I feel like a lot of times when you're in, you know, let me, all right, let me just put another thing. Okay. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I should be honest for a second. <laughs> um, yeah, go ahead. Why not? Okay. So I think around 2008 when YouTube came out, um, I saw a definite shift in terms of what people call identity politics. Okay. Um, you know, that social media thing I was talking about, like how social media is jail and you pick yeah. a side and then you pick a demographic and then you have to survive in that thing. Yeah. Um, you know, Definitely, there was a militarism that was going on um, on the black side, you know, mm-hmm. like, like, there's a certain negativity that can end up happening where like, some certain people that like, don't have as much as others, yeah. will collectively come together and it becomes like a group grievance, right? Right. And that could be valid because there are some real grievances. Absolutely. You know, but yeah. then it can also be kind of a echo chamber, right? Right. And a paranoid echo chamber. Um, but on the grievance level like that, I feel like that got fetishized on a certain level. And then other groups looked at sort of uh, black grievances and they're like, we need our own grievances too. And yes. let's, let's collectively combine and figure out what our grievances are. So, you know, there's gay grievance, there's Asian grievance, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's female grievance, whatever the grievance is, right? And so if you actually started seeing in the record industry, because I am the music video industry and what I do essentially is I, I market that's right. what music video is. Music video isn't there just for entertainment. It's there to sell an artist to sell more records. Right. And, and so when you make a music video, you're targeting a particular need in society or, or for, uh, for their demographic, and you're trying to sell that to the people so they buy your record, right? Right. Well, in 2008, Justin Bieber and Lady Gaga both came out. They're both the first YouTube people, you know? Right, and it, right. changed, it changed uh, music videos. Before then, it was all on MTV. Mm-hmm. Once YouTube came out, it was a whole different target. And the... Uh, the uh, the pollinization of YouTube videos and uh, viral videos and music videos all kind of combined together. So the marketing of these artists were very, very different. Now, obviously, and here's where cultural appropriation is very interesting to me. On one level, I don't think it's as big of a deal as it should be. But on the mm-hmm. other hand, it does exist. You right. know, And I can understand where black people have a grievance 
um, towards white people because it has happened in history. Elvis right. Presley did fucking exist. He yeah. did take black music and he did make a shit ton of money off it because he was the white guy, you know, versus the black people that actually made the original music, right? right. Justin Bieber, he, you know, like it's very clear that uh, he's a white kid that did essentially soul R&B pop. And, mm-hmm. and blew up. And if Justin Bieber didn't look like a fucking good looking white kid, he would never be where he is, you know? Right. And, and not only that, he, uh, it's a very specific case of a guy purposefully taking uh, black lingo and mm-hmm. integrating it into himself, you mm-hmm. know? And it's not like he's the first one, the Timberlakes and the Backstreet Boys and right. all the boy bands did the same shit, you know? Right. Um, K-pop right now does it like a motherfucker, you know? Oh, my, my sister is obsessed with K-pop. Yeah. <laughs> uh, K-pop so, hates me, by the way, because I say shit like this. But, I know. <laughs> but, but it's interesting that, like, uh, the, the wonderful thing about it that that's interesting about Justin Bieber this time was, is that whereas before some, like, Colonel Sanders dude would create, uh, like, Elvis Presley, right? right. In Justin Bieber's case, um, Usher created him. Right. right. Like Def Jam literally said, we know that there's going to be a white kid that pops out and does black music and it's going to sell out. We might as well fucking create that kid right. and own it. You know? right. So this, and, begs a, this begs a separate question then uh, mm-hmm. in terms of cultural appropriation. Uh, does, it, does it in some cases or in some contexts attest to the success of the black community, of black culture? Um, to what extent is the black community, I guess this is something I should ask my, my community, maybe not you, but I would like your opinion. To what extent is, is the black community actually re- itself responsible for cultural appropriation if, as you said, you have people like Usher who are grooming Justin Bieber um, to become who he became? And then is, it, is that actually cultural appropriation with all the negative connotation that comes with the term? And, and again, this is why Bodied has no answers. I have no answers. Right. You know? It's just observations. Right. And these yeah. things fluctuate from period. And I feel like also when you're trying to solve uh, like a political issue, mm. um, the context of the world changes. And then the meaning of that question changes every year, you know, right. uh, depending on uh, like where we've evolved as a society. Because 2008 is not like 2019. Right. Um, I, I will say this. Um, the, the go-to that I've always gone to, into is that I am a cultural appropriator, like from, from inception. Yeah. I'm an guy speaking English that came from Korea, right? right. And yeah. I love hamburgers, you know? <laughs> I love black music. Yeah. You know, like if there's anything about me, like um, everything I do is not necessarily what my cultural heritage is supposed to be. I've literally appropriated other people's cultures and made my own identity out of it, right? Right. Um, on the flip side, you know, black people on a certain level haven't had a choice in it, but black people are also cultural appropriators too. You're speaking English, you know, right. that is a white man's language that was forced upon black people through the slave trade, right? Right. And uh, and everything that is being even rap itself. So when uh, when rap comes in there and starts, um, uh, you're rapping English on a certain level, you're appropriating the English language. But you know, I've also noticed that because that sort of reality is there, mm-hmm. I've seen this other really interesting thing happening, like when like I'm sure you notice this when white people start taking black language like shizzle or something like that, right? Yeah. Start using it as like their mainstream language. Black people will then purposely move even further away. Yeah. That's true. That is very true. Yes. Yeah. You've always got to stay one step ahead of white people, you know, yes. as they, as they follow the remnants of what, what was there. So you still have your own code, you know? That is so true. Wow. Uh, I mean, it's just interesting observation. I don't have answers for this shit. I just have observations, you know? That's fair. I mean, my answer, 
maybe this isn't an, this is not an answer either. It's an observation. I'm going to go with that. My observation is that this is the nature of art. Uh, mm-hmm. Art is a paradox, and great art illuminates the paradoxes of life. Um, if it doesn't do that, then it's usually flat and rigid, and not something that we can call art. Uh, and so. to 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 um, put a political football into the conversation you will always have some type of cultural appropriation where there is art and so and so then you have to ask yourself you the viewer you you, the audience has to ask yourself what you value and what you esteem more do you and and why like right like do you want to uh fight against cultural appropriation do you care about that more or do you want to fight against fight for art do you care about that more i personally care more about art. Art makes me happy. <laughs> um, I gravitate toward great art, whether that be great music, great literature, um, you know, whatever. I gravitate toward great art. And I think that great art is one of the things that ennobles the human experience. And so because that is my value system, I will, I will obviously be angry at the Elvises when they do what they do, but I will, start, I will be less angry at the Justin Bieber's when they do what, what they do. And, and indeed, I will actually cheer on the Justin Bieber's because I put that into a separate category. Because of the yeah, and, that we and Justin Bieber is Elvis, you know, 40 years later. And what, right. <laughs> what, does that con- what, the, what does the context of that mean? You know, uh, the other thing that's interesting is what, what do we say when we say culture, right? Mm. Like right. we always think that culture is this unmovable monolith that doesn't move around. But right. And we and like and also when we say things like black people or white people, what does that fucking mean, right? Yeah. Like, cause like even within Europe, like my wife is Dutch, right? Okay, uh, yeah. And I mean she's full on Dutch, and so like like her skin is fucking blazing white. You could like literally use it as a lighting reflector board, right? <laughs> and, you know, from her Dutch perspective, like an Italian person isn't that white, you know? Like, but from right. like a from like a uh, from like a black person, an Italian person is definitely white, you know? Right. Like do the right so thing. it's with all me. relative. It's all relative in terms of where you think culture. And also, by the way, like when we say white people, even within white people, um, they have their own divisions and those divisions separate. Like we always pretend like France was always France and Germany right. was Germany. But if you look at a map of history, those borders flipped around. Those countries didn't exist. Go back a couple, like thousand, uh, a thousand years. Prussia existed, you know, um, like you go back even further, like there's a thing called the Gauls that we don't even know exactly who they were and, <laughs> and what those borders and what those tribes were. Yeah. And in Africa too, like um, there's this, um, there's this, uh, like push to sort of make all black people into one collective group right right <laughs> but go to africa and that does not exist you know? have you have you heard this joke in the black community where if someone if someone in the black community is being extra woke and as a sort of obnoxious way we sort of refer to it as hotepery because <laughs> <laughs> because it's basically a, a person acting as if they can trace their ancestors all the way back to the ancient pharaohs when in fact, there's probably very little relationship between us and the ancient pharaohs. <laughs> right. Well, you know, because Africa is huge. Africa yeah. is gigantic. You know, so the so the genetic variation within Africa is just as big as it is in in um in you know Europe. You know, right. and when the Europeans look at each other, they're like, "You you aren't me. You're definitely not Scandinavian. You're definitely right. not Italian." I mean, someone up in Egypt is going to look at someone from Zimbabwe and go, "You you aren't me." You know, right. like it's it's a humongous continent. You know. Yeah. Um, you know, the funny thing is like, for instance, I, I have a personal trainer I work with mm-hmm. and we, 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 he's black and, um, and in the general term of it. Right. Right. Um, 
and we get into race discussions quite quite often, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And he took that you and me test, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> Turns out he's yeah. like thirty three percent English, you know. So, oh, wow, yeah. so now he has to like go back through his brain, and whereas before he only thought of himself as African, now he can go back to sh like King Charlemagne, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and like you know George the Third, and that's right. that's legitimately as part of of his life as much as you know his perception of tribes in Africa you know yeah, that's 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 so yeah I mean and that speaks to what we've been talking about this entire time which is the complexity of the human experience not only on a sort of the the collective experiences we have in our everyday life but even on a genetic basis uh, I, I, I think that sometimes some of these issues when they become politicized were they're sort of were like inevitably going to be politicized in an American in a uniquely American context right because America is this sort of you know paints itself as a melting pot and as a and aspires to be a, a a mixture of cultures and so it seems to me now that we're hashing this out that of course these these problems which sometimes uh quite frankly seem to me to be petty uh when we like obsess ourselves over them of course these problems would come up within an american context they're sort of built into the way we conceive of identity here in america yeah, and you know what the funny thing is? I find uh, the amount of effort and energy we spend on um, physical differences kind of insane, you know? Yeah. Like, oh my God, you have slanty eyes. I have to completely think differently of you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, that's crazy, you know? Yeah. Your skin is about two shades darker than mine. Holy shit, you're a completely different person, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, the amount of, of, of emphasis that we place in America over, like, slight physical differences yeah. is insane. You know why? Because we are such a melting pot because we don't have culture on a certain level. We're, in, we're improvising right. our culture. It's unlike like if you go back to any of the original continents we're all from, um, those cultures go back thousands of years. Right. Our culture is made up on the fly over the last 250 years. Yeah. So, uh, so it seems like we get petty simply because um, you know that's what we have to go on. Right. <laughs> sort of like the byproduct of ha building a culture not on you know thousand old traditions but as you said just like in a very recent way i mean what comes with that is is our great things oftentimes diversity and things that connect us and the ability for people from all different backgrounds and races to come together and do things but also just pettiness <laughs> yeah. you know and, and i also think that the thing that's happening here in america has happened in other countries in the past there have definitely been mm -hmm. like you know intersectional um countries where mm -hmm. like ports and things like that where people from different races come together and then they fuck each other and then yeah. <laughs> and then different babies come out and and then different cultures get blended in but this is on such a massive scale and such a quick scale yeah. um that uh and with uh, with technology sort of doing that there's no question to, in my mind the the concept of race is at a boiling point right now only because it's the most under attack it's ever been you know mm -hmm because um there's definitely like a lot of race mixing going on people's even like if you look at statistics even in today's trump world people's attitude towards um you know miscegenation or mm -hmm. you know like or, or just like like having sex with other races is vastly different than 20 years ago right um, like i remember like when i was going to 
um, school in Texas in the 80s, I thought I was never going to get fucking laid, right? <laughs> like, like I, I'm just a nerdy Asian dude. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, no, no races want to have sex with me. My, even Asian girls want to have sex with white guys. Like, I was like, <laughs> I'm fucked for the rest of my I did a calculation, and, uh, and, I, and I sort of, like, started figuring, like, well, the girl probably has to have, like, like at least 130 IQ. You know, <laughs> she has to be into Asian dudes. Um, she has to be okay with my sweaty hands. And I, I think I came up with, like, one in a billion, right? Yeah. <laughs> After I calculated all Likelihood, that. Likelihood, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but I remember going back to Houston about ten years ago, first time, right? Walking through the mall, and I saw like white girls with Asian guys. I saw black <laughs> girls, white uh, white guys. Yeah, um, and I just saw like it had just completely flipped around. So what I'm seeing right now is that, irrespective of the segregation that is being imposed by social media, mm -hmm. um, in in the street itself, there's a lot of fucking going on. You know? <laughs> That's such an ironic juxtaposition of like where there's heightened racial tensions and also like like intermarriage, <laughs> racial intermarriage. Yeah, explain on that. A massive yeah. scale. Another, explain that, you know? <laughs> yeah, like another another incredible paradox that is uniquely American. Okay, um, last question, I guess, and then you can add whatever you'd like to add. Um, what advice, because you said that it was hard to sort of get this film accepted into the mainstream because of all the ivory tower, um, you know, judges and stuff like that. What advice would you give to people, to artists in, in you know, broadly speaking, but filmmakers uh, specifically who want to push the needle and, and subvert stereotypes with different films and different projects? What piece of advice would you give to them to be able to succeed at that? Okay. Um, that's a great question because I have very specific ideas about that. Oh, amazing. Okay. So, so the first thing right now is you have to always get off whatever the trendy thing is, right? Mm. And the trendy thing right now is identity, okay? Yeah. Like literally like I should be hired because I'm a black woman, right? Mm. I should be hired because I'm an Asian female. I should be hired because I'm an Asian male. And these are the slots that you have in the world. Let me mm. fill that slot for you. Like literally right now, the way that because of the demand for identity politics, uh, uh, the white people that run the studios have literally put placeholders there and saying, I must fill these slots with specific things. Yeah. On a certain level, like I think every critic out there goes, oh, this is wonderful. It's diversity. For me, as from a creative person, I think that's creative death, you know, because right. you're slotting in people to fit very specific perspectives of what you think those people should be saying. Right. But why can't a fucking black woman make an anime film, right? Right. You know, why can't an Asian woman make like you know uh like a, a marvel fucking avengers movie or some shit you know right. like yeah. like why are you slotting people only to make create if you're asian make crazy rich asians right, right. If, if, <laughs> you're, if you're uh if you're black only make 12 years a slave right, right. Uh, and that's what's going to end up happening if you you start codifying the way that people's identities should be mapped onto art and i think that's actually very constricting for art you know mm -hmm. So on, on a basic level, I think we need to throw away, uh, as an individual artist, what society does with our external features and how they perceive us, that's mm -hmm. society. But I'm saying as artists, um, eradicate that. If it is truly your identity and that's all you are and that's all you have to go with, then fine. I guess you have to make films that way, right? right. But I, I suspect that most artists are artists because we're not the stereotypes. Precisely because we're not the stereotypes. <laughs> yes. That's uh, what know? keeps coming back. Like, that is what art is, is because you don't fit the stereotype. That's the point. Exactly. So, I would embrace the fact that you're not a stereotype, and that's a powerful weapon in terms of like being valid as an artist in the first place. Right. Artists don't go out there making things about things that everybody does exactly the same. Artists go out there and change people's heads, right? So, yeah. if you're a different person, most likely you are, you are what is 
what is needed inside you because you are different and you are unique and you are interesting. So embrace that, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, and don't try to fit in a slot and start presenting yourself as a slot as a placeholder. Cause then you're just going to be a cog in the machine. Right. Exactly, and maybe yeah. you'll be happy being a cog in the machine because that pays very well, yeah. but it's not good fucking art. You know, yeah. the second thing is irrespective of all that, knowing that you have your personal journeys and your stories, um, and you want to be an artist. Let's not forget art is a craft. Mm. So a lot of people want to get to the artist position without doing the work as a craftsperson. And that's a mistake. Um, a lot of people sometimes focus too much on the craft itself with nothing to say at the end of the day. That's always a, that's always a worry, obviously. Mm -hmm. But if you're already a beautiful, living, unique creature, you don't have that to worry about. Right? Right. <laughs> so the best thing you can possibly do is then get down and do the work. Learn how to edit. Learn how to shoot. You know, mm -hmm. figure out why edits work, figure out the technical things, figure out how shots work, figure out how music integrates. There's just a wealth of things. I've been doing it for 30 years and I still learn every day, you yeah. know? And so irrespective of, um, of all the politics of, of, of why, uh, you can break into the business. If you become a craftsperson, um, the rest of it kind of takes care of itself, you mm -hmm. know? You work yourself, you're going to definitely work yourself as a human being every day, but work on yourself as an artist and a craftsman, that is the number one weapon you can have to make yourself better than other people. Because at the end of the day, there's two people that are black, right? Mm -hmm. The one uh, that has, that can actually shoot is going to one that is probably going to win the job, right? right. Unless right. we're in some weird other place where you got some guilty white person and you go, I'm more black than the other person. Right. Then you're fucked, you know? Yeah, <laughs> Definitely. Awesome. Okay. So, so do not fit the stereotype, be an artist if that's what you are and also study the craft and hone in on your skills. Um, and just really be excellent at that. Amazing advice. And you believe that that will ultimately win out the day. Well, I mean, that's how I got it there. You know, like right. I, I, you know, I've been working and being successful before, um, identity politics, really like nobody wanted to see an Asian person in, in, in rap or rock, quite frankly. Right. <laughs> Uh, but the fact that I was easy to work with and mm -hmm. my craft was so good, like gave me the edge. And I, I truly believe if you can just keep working on your craft, it, it solves a lot of problems. Yeah. It, I, that makes sense. It sort of, I mean, it's, it opens a lot of doors because you obviously have the talent and the skill set, and that will show forth, I think ultimately. Okay. I know I promised that that was the last question, but I have one more question. <laughs> what, what was it like to work with Taylor Swift? Oh, <laughs> I mean, look, she's my favorite artist yeah. um, to work with because she's genuinely uh, thoughtful. Um, you know, and it's, it's kind of a foreign thoughtfulness to me because it's, a, it's definitely a white thoughtfulness. Um, <laughs> what in a good way. It's a white Southern uh, 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 thoughtfulness. Um, it's, it's just kind of hard to explain, right? Like, uh, from my perspective, I'm kind of an introvert, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I've spent my entire life uh, kind of being made fun of. Like, trust me, when I did those rap videos, it's not like I walked into those ghettos and everybody was like, oh, Asian person, we love you. No, they made fun <laughs> of me, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and so there's always been sort of this edginess to me and, mm -hmm. and my sense of humor and the way I interact with the world and how I fight with the world, right? Mm -hmm. And Taylor is definitely like uh, like, like comes from like, a, a like this really well-educated white family, you mm -hmm. know, uh, her dad's like a very rich stock and very successful. Mm -hmm. Um, she's definitely had like, uh, an education that, that has given her the, the brain to, to like, like, um, get through the, um, the business world. Mm 
So there's this poised, uh, amazing brain there that, uh, you know, and there is a bit of privilege there uh, because you can't get there without, you know, those tools, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, But at the end of the day, as much as you go, shit, this is a very privileged girl, she's also super fucking nice. (laughs) And and you're like, God damn it. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like, you can't really, you can't really, like, you want to hate people like that. Yeah. When they're that genuinely nice and that genuinely thoughtful. Like, ah, shit, well, maybe we should all just get there at some point. Maybe we should all yeah. you know, try to have families like that, you know, <laughs> if we're fortunate enough, you know, because sometimes yeah. sometimes those kids turn out really terrible, but in her case, it, it came out really fucking awesome. That's awesome. Wow. Well, thank you so much for an amazing, <laughs> amazing conversation. We'll end on that note. Um, thank you for joining the Theory of Enchantment podcast. I encourage everyone to go see the film Bodied if you haven't for an interesting, compelling observation of the way we deal with and navigate race and identity and art and hip hop in America. Thank you for joining me, Joseph. Thanks, Chloe. And speaking of great art and great artistry, today's quote comes from Walter Isaacson's book on Steve Jobs, which I just recently finished two weeks ago. Quote, if you want to live your life in a creative way as an artist, you have to not look back too much. You have to be willing to take whatever you've done and whoever you were and throw them away. The more the outside world tries to reinforce an image of you, the harder it is to continue to be an artist which is why a lot of times artists have to say, bye, I have to go, I'm going crazy and I'm getting out of here. And they go and hibernate somewhere. Maybe later they reemerge a little differently. That's Steve Jobs, ladies and gentlemen. And that is today's episode of the Theory of Enchantment podcast. I hope you enjoy it and I hope you have a great weekend. (laughs) 